Good to be with you all this morning. I see that you survived last night's storm. Um, that was something, wasn't it? You know, I, I grew up uh, where thunderstorms happened all the time, and it was exciting, but, but nothing all that special, but that is not common up here, right? And so, so last night, Caitlin and I, we were watching a movie, and we didn't lose power, but we pressed pause and stood out at the front door and watched what seemed to be a better movie up in the sky um, as the, got a really great light show. There was this big and, and bright thunderbolt that seemed to just be a couple of blocks away um, that was startling and, and really epic. Um, so with the rain falling and school starting and I, I hear the Seahawks are playing this afternoon. Um, I, I guess we are easing out of summertime uh, and, and really beginning to enter into the fall. And, and that also means something else, uh, because today is, is one year since my first Sunday with you all. Um, thank you. Uh, so so I, I guess I just wanted to say happy anniversary um, I, I remembered, uh, but, but truly, Caitlin and I both want to say a, a really big thank you to, to all of you. Uh, this past year has been kind of unexpectedly wild uh, for, for Caitlin and me. There's been joy and, and celebration, and there's also been grief and loss. Um, and so y- you have all been really, really kind, really supportive, and, and really present throughout it. Uh, and so... So thank you. Um, and, and amidst all of that, it's just been really fun being a part of this community, getting to know you all. Um, and so I, I'm looking forward to kind of entering into this second year of life together um, and, and seeing all that God has in store for us. So, so with all of that said, uh, we're kind of finishing up summer, entering into the fall. We're going to put a bookmark in the Psalms that we've been doing over the summer and and possibly come back right where we left off next summer. Um, but, but this week, I want to kind of start something new. For, for the next month or so, I want to spend some time talking about our worship together. Specifically, the, the time that we spend together is, as we gather week after week to, to worship right, right here in this, at this time, in this place. And I want to do this for a couple of reasons. First, because I, I want to be sure that, that these times when we gather together doesn't just become rote. It doesn't just become something that, that we do because we've always done it, but that it can remain fresh and rooted in, in the truth of God's word and in the reality of God's kingdom. And, and second, another reason why I want to spend some time looking at this and, and considering it together is because we are shaped and formed by what we do when we come together. This, this time is what shapes us and forms us. And, and I want you to hear this. If you want to know what a church believes, then look at the way they worship. Sure, you, you can look up creeds and confessions. You can read about pages on websites. But if you really want to know what a church believes, look at the way they worship. This was true in the Old Testament, right? Though the people of Israel had Torah, the law, sort of their confession of faith, or perhaps a very lengthy about page on the website, uh, throughout the Old Testament, we see that 
from time to time, they would begin worshiping other gods, right? So the people of God stopped worshiping God. And so God would send prophets to call them back, to bring them back together, bring them back to him. And so if you really want to know what a community believes, look at how they worship. And Jesus was was really adamant about this. He insisted that you know a tree by its fruit, not by the sign that's posted next to it whenever you're walking through the field, not by which grove the tree is planted in. You know a tree by getting up close to it and looking at the fruit that it bears, by, by tasting it, right? You know people by the way they worship. And then we see this all the more in the early church, right? Throughout the book of Acts, the people of God are consistently described by the way that they worship. At the end of Acts 2, the sort of birth of the church, so to speak, we don't see a list of doctrines. We don't see a charter for this new community. Rather, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And then at the end of Acts chapter 4, we we see them singing together and praying for boldness. And it goes on to say that the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So they are known by the way that they worship. So much so that that by Acts chapter 9, they come to simply be called the way. This is what the early Christians were called. They are a people who are known by their way of life a people who pray and sing and gather around the table together. And now, there's actually a word for this. Some of you may may know it. It's the word liturgy. Some of you may be familiar with the word liturgy. Maybe you grew up in a tradition that used it to describe worship gatherings. But others of you might not be as familiar with that word. Maybe you're even a little suspicious of it because it, it was always the word used to describe other church traditions, right? Or maybe it just feels too formal for, for you. But the early Christians often used words or phrases from public community life to describe their own life together. A prime example of this is the word church. Uh, it's the Greek word ekklesia, that, that we use to, to uh, that's translated church. And this word, ecclesia, was a common word in their day. It, it's a word that just simply meant kind of the city council or, or a town hall, kind of this, this gathering of, of people in the community. And it came to be used to describe their own gatherings. And this is how we ended up with the word church. The same is true of the word liturgy. It comes from the Greek words laos and ergos, which means people and work. And so late ergos, liturgy, literally means the work of the people. Or another way of translating it is public service. And so if we combine ecclesia and liturgy, we actually get our phrase church service. It's where this comes from. We just use kind of an updated version of it. This is what the word liturgy means, the work of the people, the service of the people of God. 
what people do when they gather together. So if you want to know what people believe, look at the way they worship. Look at their liturgy. And so it's our liturgy that shapes us and forms us week after week. So I want to spend a little bit of time just kind of shining a spotlight on various pieces of our liturgy. And today I want to start at the very beginning. And liturgy starts with this. It starts with a call to attention, right? It, so some of you may have been starting to glaze over with all those Greek words, and so that, that bell probably perked you right up, right? It kind of woke you right up out of that. Liturgy begins with a call to attention, a call to worship, something that yanks us out of the fog and the days of our day-to-day life and wakes us up to the reality of God. Right? This is not the best bell. It was cheap, Amazon, but it gets the job done, right, for an illustration. Now, now once upon a time, church services literally started with ringing bells, right? Did, did any of you grow up in a town that Sunday mornings were filled with the kind of distant echo of church bells, right? Maybe. You know, some, some churches still do this, and, and it is a call to gather together and worship God. But the image of a bell has a lot of different connotations for us, right? Maybe it's the annoying ringing of an alarm clock in the morning. No? Or maybe it's the tardy bell at school that if you're there after it, you're only met with judgment. But the image that I want you to hold on to is not a startling alarm clock or a judgmental tardy bell, but rather the call of a dinner bell. It's time for dinner. Come on in, right? I'll ask you again, any of you ever experienced this? Maybe a dinner bell being, being rung to, to call the family together, time to eat, it's dinner time, come on in, right? right? A dinner bell is an invitation to take a break from your work, to come inside, to gather around a table for refreshment and rest. And that is what we do together each week. We gather around the table of the Lord to rest in his word and to be refreshed by his body and his blood. And though we don't have a literal bell that rings to call us together, we do begin our time each week being called to worship God. Every week, Like a ringing bell, we are called out of the fog of day-to-day life, and we're invited to gather around the table with the Lord's Prayer. This is sort of our dinner bell, the Lord's Prayer that we hear week after week, that we pray week after week. And so I want to spend the rest of our time together considering it. If you want to open your Bible, it's Matthew chapter 6 is where we find the Lord's Prayer. Some of you may not need to turn there, and you may already know it. Uh, But we'll look at this together. It's Matthew chapter 6, verses uh, 9 through 13 is, is where we see this. Hear the word of the Lord. 
Jesus says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, so much for giving us the words of this prayer to teach us and challenge us to come to you. God, I pray that as we consider the words of Scripture and the words of this prayer, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this prayer that Jesus taught us to pray is our dinner bell, right? It is the call to worship that gathers us together week after week. It is the bell that wakes us up to the real story that we're living in. And it's sort of a weekly reorientation that helps us find our bearings, not just in the world, but in the kingdom of God. I think that this prayer reorients us to the reality of, of a few things, maybe, maybe three things that we often lose track of or get lost in throughout our weeks. So, so these are the things I want to look at. This prayer reorients us around God. It reorients us around the world. And it reorients us around our own selves. So let's consider each of these. Right? First, this prayer reorients us around God. From the very start, it addresses God. And if we're honest, we, we sorely need this reminder. Our Father in heaven, right? In the hustle and bustle of every day, of all, all the noise of our work in the world, it is easy for us to just forget about God. And even if we cognitively believe in God, we can live day to day like we don't really know him. And, and I'm guilty of this too, right? I mean, even though my weeks are spent studying and, and reading about God and talking with other people about God, I can often go far too long without actually talking to God or stopping to really hear from God. And so this prayer is like a bell that calls our attention back to God. And it begins not with an impersonal statement about God, but as a personal address to God. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And at once this address shows us a couple of things. It shows us that God is holy and that God is personal. So first, God is holy. It's that he is in heaven and his name is hallowed. Now, this phrase may be kind of confusing to us. Names don't hold near the meaning that they did in the ancient world. Because a name is not just something that you call someone. It's a representation of that person's being. 
A name actually holds the essence of a person. And so to say holy is your name doesn't mean that there's something magical about God's name or or about saying it. Rather, it is saying that God, the person of God, is holy. The essence of God is holy. And what does holiness mean? It means something that is holy. It's pure. It's set apart. It is essentially other, right? It's special. There are dishes that you eat on every day, and then there's the china that you take out for holidays, literally holy days. There's water, tea, soda that you drink every day, but then there's that special bottle of wine that you're saving for that special occasion. There's your checking account that you spend money out of every day, but then there's your savings account where you put money away for for something special, right? All of these are kind of examples of holy things, things that are special, that are set apart. And the thing is, is that they, they don't mix. You don't mix your regular dishes in your china. You don't mix everyday water in with special wine. You don't mix your checking and your savings account, otherwise you would spend it all. Holy things don't mix with common things, right? So in some way, there's a sense in that we are here and holiness is there. And God is holy. But this is the wonder of Christian faith, that though God is holy, he is here. Though his name is hallowed, we call him our Father. And this is unique to Christian faith. Most religions see God as holy, see God as, as other. And then in our day-to-day life, we might acknowledge God, but generally view him as there while we are here. But in this prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, God is not only holy, but he is our Father. God is not only there, but he is here. And this, this term Father, it's this personal and intimate term. It's a term of affection and care. And, and there are places in, in the Old Testament where we see references to God as Father. This wasn't entirely new or groundbreaking, but what is striking is that Jesus does not just call God Father, but he calls him Abba, which is the, the term that a child uses to address their, their father. It's personal. It's intimate. And, and yet, I, I have to pause and, and acknowledge that the word father does carry all kinds of baggage with it, too. Because many of us have experienced fathers who have brought hurt and neglect, fathers who failed us over and over again, And so, for some, it might actually be really hard to hear the word Father without tensing up a little. But God is not like earthly fathers. He is our Father in heaven. And he does not fail us, but rather pours out unending love toward us. And we're invited to trust him 
and love him and return. And so this prayer reorients us around God, who is holy and who is personal. But it also reorients our view of the world that we live in. And invites us to see this world as, as broken and being redeemed. So at the end of the prayer, we are warned that the world is filled with temptation and evil, right? We pray for deliverance from it. And this is something that we can easily grow numb to. Our culture normalizes all kinds of evil and temptations. It normalizes sensuality and advertisements and entertainment, encouraging stray eyes and stray thoughts, and whispering the lie that your worth is in your body, whether you have the right muscles, the right hair, the right shapes. And while our culture calls forth lingering eyes, it also encourages us to turn a blind eye to all kinds of poverty, all kinds of abuse, homelessness, addiction. All of this also so easily becomes normal. And it's easy for us to just grow numb to these kinds of things. But like a ringing bell, this prayer wakes us up to the reality of temptation and evil that we journey through day after day. And it invites us to to have eyes of discernment that can see that and to pray for deliverance from it. And yet this is not all that the prayer tells us about the world. Because this world is not only broken, it's also being redeemed. Because though we are warned of temptation and evil, we also pray for God's kingdom to come and will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this means that our posture toward the world around us should not be suspicion, but rather hope. It means that God's posture toward the world is not primarily judgment, but rather redemption. And and listen, it would be much easier to either give in to temptation and evil that are present all around us, or to just kind of reject and shun the world entirely. But the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray invites us to live in the tension of a world that is broken and being redeemed. And living in this tension means that the kingdom of God is not just there, but it is also here, in our midst. It's something that we can discover day after day and be surprised by in the midst of monotony. And so I want to invite you to consider what does it look like to, to look at your day-to-day life, your, your weekly work and the world you live in, and to have hope for it. What would it look like for the kingdom to come in those places? That's the invitation of this prayer. To consider that, to live in a posture of hope and trusting that God is a good father. And so this prayer reorients us toward God. It 
changes our orientation around the world, and, and it also changes our orientation around our own selves. As a people who are both in need and on mission. A people who call upon God, but are also called by God. And so, if you look at the prayer, we we have this petition, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. And this shows us that we are a people desperately in need. The prayer is, is give and forgive. And now give us this day our daily bread is not a prayer that we maybe often pray. Because if we're honest, we are doing okay, most of us. We don't have to worry about our bread later today. We don't have to worry about our bread tomorrow. And yet this prayer encourages us to see that all that we have is from God. All that we have has been given to us and we receive it from him. It also encourages us to to think of those who are in need of bread today and tomorrow. And it doesn't stop at, at the prayer to give us our bread, but also to forgive our debts. And so we see that there are things that we do not have that we need. And there are also things that we have that we need God to take. We have our sins. We have our heavy hearts, our own brokenness that we carry around day after day. And so this prayer invites us to see ourselves as people who are are desperately in need and to come to God for that. But we are not only in need, we are also on mission. We do not only call upon God, we are also called by God. God. Because in the next line, we, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And this shows us that we are actually participating in the redemption that God is bringing to the world around us. Just as we pray for and need grace, we also carry that grace with us everywhere we go. We bring that grace into our places of work, into our homes, into our relationships, that we are actually part of this redemption that God is working in the world. What does that look like? How can we be people who live not only in need, but also on mission, humble in ourselves, but confident in God? And so this prayer that we pray week after week is not just a rote thing that we do. It's a bell that wakes us up to a whole new reality where God is holy and here, where the world is is broken but being redeemed, where we are in need and on mission. What of these things do you tend to grow numb to, or oblivious to throughout the week? What of these do you most need to be woken up to? God invites us into this whole new reality 
And he invites us to, to gather around the table. This is the way in which we are shaped and formed week after week. And so as we pray this prayer, may we be shaped by it. And may we truly believe that the kingdom and the power and the glory is his forever and ever. Amen.